Hello, welcome to the Water Justice Podcast. Join us as we share stories from various voices responding to water and social justice challenges across the globe. Your hosts, Tim Whiffen and myself, Kat Taylor, acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia on which this podcast has been produced, and we honour their connections to land, sea and community. As managing humans, resources and the environment becomes increasingly complex and strained by population growth or modern technology, considering the interactions of different fields of thought has become crucial. Today on the Water Justice Podcast, we consider the relationship between what we eat, the energy we use and the water we drink. In other words, the food-energy-water nexus. The phrase has risen in prominence over the last decade as thought leaders have stressed the interconnectedness of food to water, water to the environment, and the environment to energy, and so on. Nexus thinking, as it is called, takes into account the trade-offs between food, energy, and water as a lens with which to consider new policy or existing actions. This topic highlights just how central water justice is to what we do every day, as it relates to everything else in the systems we live with. No matter what country or regime you live in, the food-energy-water nexus is a useful tool to understand the consequences of the human impact on Earth, and has proven to be a great framework with which to advocate for water justice. Joining Kat on the Water Justice podcast today are two water warriors at the forefront of the food-energy-water nexus. To introduce us to the nexus is Sarah Torhan, PhD candidate in Water Resources Engineering and Geography at Penn State University in the United States of America. Sarah joins us from the original homelands of the Erie, Haudenosaunee, Lenape, Shawnee, Susquehannock, and Wazazi nations. Following this intriguing introduction to Nexus thinking is an insightful interview with Dr. Pamela Katic, who has implemented research in Nexus doing. Dr. Katic has been bringing water justice to disadvantaged communities through Nexus doing across the globe, but is based at the Natural Resources Institute of the University of Greenwich in the United Kingdom. But before we know what action to take, we need to understand the relationship between these complex systems of food, energy, and water. Kat spoke to Sarah first to understand the connection between water justice and nexus thinking. Welcome, Sarah Torhan, to the Water Justice Podcast. Can you tell us a bit more about the food, energy, water nexus and how this connects with some of these justice issues? Yeah, of course. The food, energy, water nexus, which sounds like it could be from a sci-fi movie, but what a nexus is, is it's just a network and it represents how things are connected. So the food, energy, water nexus represents how these environmental processes are connected to supply natural resources, and then how humans or non-humans, depending on your perspective, can access resources to make sure that we can meet our agricultural energy and water demands. We often think of the food energy water nexus as this systems way of thinking. So that means that we can't consider the management of our food systems without considering also our water systems and our energy systems. So we have to consider these systems as being complex and they're intertwined. And especially in a day of climate change and natural resource scarcity, where we have to make decisions on what resources will go to what and to who, the three sectors, they impact each other and they can compete for these natural resources. So an example of this 
we can think of like a forest. And if that forest is converted into commercial agricultural land, this could have implications for local and regional food and water availability. If you change the land in a certain way, that can affect the habitat and ecosystems of local food sources that you know, local populations are used to being able to access. It affects how water enters the groundwater systems. It affects your microclimates. It affects plant structures that protect soil and surface water, which then can impact water quality, river systems downstream. If there's hydropower downstream, that'll affect hydropower. And like the cascading list of effects can go on. Just to give an idea, so to summarize the food energy water nexus, it simply represents the fact that where our food energy and water resources come from is incredibly integrated and complex. And often we have to call these natural resources that are available and abundant in the ability of humans to access these systems as security. So the argument here is that we should be aware and strive to make decisions for food, energy, water security, providing access to these resources and to these systems equitably among all populations and be aware whether we're having negative impacts on certain populations and how we distribute those resources. So maybe if we looked at a different example, like the hydraulic fracturing that you were talking about before, what would the food energy water nexus tell us about that? Yeah, so I can speak on this more so from an antidote. When I was living in Pittsburgh just during COVID, before I started my PhD, I was working on a farm. And the farmer, they would get, I don't want to call them lobbyists, but they would get people coming to their door and asking them for their mineral rights to their land so that they could do hydraulic fracturing on like this 15 acres of farmland. And what the farmer would say, he would deny their requests. And what he would say is that you could see like the land sinking in like these farms around them that have sold their mineral rights, knowing that this was impacting like the water that was used to to um, irrigate the crops. And also it was affecting like the pests that were um, coming or the agricultural pests that were coming around because they were it was causing like vibrations in the ground. Um, so it was causing more pests to come to the agricultural lands, which is pressuring more farms to use other forms of pest management or making it harder on them. So it was affecting the water that they use to irrigate their crops, the water that they use to wash their crops in order to meet food safety standards. Um, the water for their family because their family used well water as like their water source for water security. And um, this was all a result of hydraulic fracturing, which is used to meet global energy demands. So this is just like an antidote based on like personal experience of how, you know, meeting global energy demands impacts like this local farm and like a local household and a community's ability to access safe water. I think that's a really great example. What would it look like to have a more connected or cohesive approach? What's your recommendation for um, what this might mean on the ground? Yeah, that's a great question. How I view, how I take like a systems thinking approach and thinking about these problems is 
you can see the scale of how like melting Arctic sea ice causes changes to the ocean that drive weather patterns on this global scale. And then this affects these extreme events on more regional or local scales. So in my opinion, if there are, you know, these policymakers and NGOs and organizations and these private sectors that are working across global scales, I would recommend that they have more of an obligation to understand those broader impacts and predict what regions are those broader impacts going to impact the most. So if we can predict that, for example, the southeastern United States is going to be heavily impacted by sea level rise and extreme flooding, then those broader actors can, you know, come in and support these regions with like resources and information and suggestions on how maybe they could adapt or start making making more efforts on a local basis. Can you talk a bit about how that might lead to better outcomes in the water justice space or would um, it lead yes. to better outcomes in the water justice space? Yeah, yeah. So I think that this is really difficult here because, yes, I do think that this could lead to more distributive justice, more equitable distribution of resources in the water justice space. But I think that it can be a little bit complicated. I think the best that we can do as like researchers is to highlight these areas, like where are people most vulnerable to certain natural hazards? And then for example, what communities might be the most economically vulnerable, which is a pretty common metric for social vulnerability, but also are there marginalized communities based on race or ethnic minority or migrants or people with disabilities? And how can we also prioritize that in addition to their vulnerability to natural hazards? So Just to put another plug in for another study that happened as part of the Global Adaptation Mapping Initiative, this study was led by Dr. Malcolm Eros, and my advisor was also part of this, but they looked at the equity concerns in adaptation, and one of their main takeaways was that equity was less likely to be considered in adaptation responses, especially in Europe, Australia, Asia, and North America. And they concluded that some of these most vulnerable, socially vulnerable populations were rarely considered. So it just like prompts this bigger call for attention to the different forms of equity needs that need to be integrated in climate change adaptation. So I'm hopeful that water justice could be considered. And I think that there's a lot of scholars out there doing work to emphasize these areas that are most vulnerable, both socially and by the climatic hazards. But I think that it takes an, also an activism push to actually get this in practice and implemented. Sarah Torhan, thanks so much for talking to the Water Justice Podcast. You're listening to the Water Justice Podcast. To stay up to date with the program and other content from the Water Justice Hub, You can follow The Hub on Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter or Facebook at Water Justice Hub. Today on the Water Justice podcast, we have Dr. Pamela Kadic. 
who is an Associate Professor in Economics at the Livelihoods and Institutions Department in the Natural Resources Institute at the University of Greenwich in the United Kingdom. Through her research, Pamela has gained considerable experience assessing the constraints and opportunities of innovative agricultural investments and, importantly, the food, energy and water nexus. Welcome, Pamela. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, Kat. And thanks so much for joining us. I'm so happy that you made the time to tell us a little bit more about the food, energy and water nexus. How have you seen that idea change over time? Is the way we think about the nexus now different to the way we thought about it as the idea started to evolve? Okay, so the idea started off in 2011. So now we're in 2022, more than 10 years of research. And yes, there has been a lot of very important and critical research, you know, trying to un- understand these issues and, and, you know, advance nexus thinking. So th- there has been a lot of progress, but however, you know, the implementation, you know, jumping, going from the research and from the conceptualization and, you know, the theoretical frameworks to the actual actions and implementation and institutionalization on the ground, there's still a big gap. And the most clear, I would say one of the most clear ways of demonstrating that we are still not, you know, doing enough or not at enough scale, it's that we are living in an, through another crisis where, you know, the food, water and energy drivers are still very much so interconnected and this crisis is even more serious than the previous one. So I don't think we've learned enough or we've done enough to actually implement these uh, Nexus ideas. So there is this big gap from Nexus thinking to Nexus doing. Partly this gap or this challenge for to operationalize the Nexus thinking ideas like in the way that much of the research has been done, which is more on the biophysical technical side. So modeling the interlinkages between these systems as if they were purely natural systems, where in the real world, these systems are pretty much moved and influenced by human decisions and by societies and institutions. So that, you know, modeling of the systems as natural systems where in you know in the real world they are actually socio-ecological systems that's i think partly why much of the research or most of the research still has not translated into you know changes on the ground and how does that change things when we're viewing it as a socio-ecological system rather than just a, a natural system what's the impact of that well, I think, you know, you start looking at, okay, not only modeling what are like the, the trade-offs, for example, if I use more water here and less water here, then what happens? But you actually start looking more at policies, more at actions, more at, you know, what drives the behavior and the policies in, in these systems and what will be, you know, the influence in, in, in the results, in the outcomes. So, you're more looking in a, in a more action way, more action focused, rather than just looking at, okay, as if you were like a grand planner that you're, you know, magically moving things around, right? You're actually trying to model, you know, what people respond to and try to understand, you know, the drivers and more like you know, what moves the system rather than just move it and see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> I see. And how does Nexus thinking help us to either achieve water justice or how can nexus thinking complement the way we think about water justice? 
I think it can definitely complement it because when when you achieve or when you when you implement actions to to try to you know to have more just outcomes in terms of water that in many cases that leads to more just outcomes in terms of food and in terms of energy, just because of these interlinkages. So, for for example, if I go to the work we are doing with the communities in, in the Amazon, so we work very, very deep in the jungle. It's actually quite a trek to get there. It takes like three days. And we're working with Awahun communities. Now, this is an area where, unfortunately, there's quite a lot of illegal mining, which has been polluting their river. So, in the past few years, they livelihoods have kind of transitioned from very being very based on on fishing from the river to alternative sources of food and livelihoods further away from the river and into the communities and farming also has this decreased quite considerably particularly cash crops and that is because fertilizers have become very 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 expensive in Peru it's one of the countries that has got mostly hit by the current crisis and increasing the fertilizer prices. So a lot of the indigenous peoples in the communities, they're moving away from cocoa, which was the usual cash crop that they used to, to farm to get money into the fish ponds. So as you can see, you know, it's very much an interconnection of like an activity that has been driven by you know, water pollution, increasing fertilizer prices, and also a desire to have fish in their diets because of a lack of protein from other sources. Uh, these communities have really sprawled out in the past decades, so there's quite a pressure from the population increase. Uh, so there's not as much animals in the forest for them to hunt. So they need to look for alternative uh, sources of protein. And they also live very far away from the markets, right? So they're not really market, yeah, they're not very well connected. So the fish farms, driven by, I guess, a combination of an organic process, but also some funding from outside sources. So the fish farms, you know, they provide to them some cash, you know, from selling the fish. They provide uh, protein uh, for their diets. And also they provide an additional, you know, a livelihood, livelihood, sorry, activity that it's it's very important for them. So there's there is clearly there an issue with water justice, right? Because these communities have been very much disadvantaged in their access to water and in their self-determination in terms of, you know, by themselves, you know, designing, you know, their way that they're gonna govern how water is managed in their community and how you know, water affects them. So in, in this project, by having this Nexus approach, we are working with the communities in an alternative on action in response to the water justice, that injustice that they are experiencing. It, it is something that we think it is promoting, in a way, actions towards wa water justice. But yeah, I, I do think that we could take more complementary actions to be more explicit about the you know water injustices so for example if we were to make this connection with bigger scales of the government and you know try to promote these technologies more widely these fish farm technologies then the issue of the river you know being so you know heavily polluted and, you know, this leading to uh, these interventions on fishman, I think it will raise, you know, more of an alarm of, okay, there's clearly some issues here, some underlying issues that are affecting the communities. So we, you know, I, I had 
worked on a proposal which it's still under review for funding, but you know the next step, looking more explicitly at water justice issues, because we, we realized this was you know a very a clear concern you know in the community. So in the next project or in the next proposal, what we uh, have pro proposed to do is to look at you know water justice and how to promote you know this more transparent you know management of water and how to empower or work you know strengthen the capacities and uh, and the voice of these communities you know to put forward their own you know the issues and try to understand you know and, and try to um, work with them in you know designing their own principles for water management and try to you know kind of lobby or advocate for that so I guess as a result of this project, we said, okay, we really need to look into, it's really important that we look into more explicitly into water justice. And, you know, and that's when we came with the next project, which hopefully will be <laughs> funded. We, we are waiting for the result. Thanks for explaining that. And I think you are saying really clearly that when we're looking at water and water injustice, we're often looking at all these connected issues of food injustice climate injustice, energy injustice that are all linked together. Pamela, you've talked about several food crises. Can you tell me about how they have in informed and created Nexus Thinking? Yes. So uh, so the first crisis that I talked about was the food crisis in 2007, 2008. And that's when it was the first time that it was really widely acknowledged that the crisis, you know, was happening as a result of interlinked shocks, you know, in terms of energy prices, droughts in many parts of the world, and, you know, that, that driving, you know, a spike in prices, in food prices throughout the world, along with other, of course, other macroeconomic drivers. But, you know, as a result of, of that crisis, that's when, uh, people started thinking, okay, we really need to start connecting the dots and trying to coordinate actions uh, between these three systems to try to avoid this happening again. And then in, uh, in the year 2011, there was this conference in Bonn in Germany where the concept of you know, water energy food systems emerged in, in those terms, in that framing. And people said, okay, you know, we really need to start thinking in, in these terms of various you know, multilateral organizations, UN, you know, OECD, Etc. All the big players and and institutes started thinking on 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 those those terms in this framing and many initiatives and platforms started coming up right trying to advance you know research and thinking in, in terms of the nexus right and trying to understand the trade-offs trying to understand the different systems seeing you know you know how well were we doing how far off we were in terms of, you know, designing actions that were, you know, holistically thinking of these interconnections. Now, 10 years later, we are facing, unfortunately, another quite strong crisis, also a very much interconnected nexus crisis, right, where we have uh, food, crisis, uh, food prices going uh, very high, much higher than in the previous crisis. Well, now they've gone down, but I mean, they, they, they got a, a peak higher than the previous prices, then energy prices going up and pretty much driving the food prices and droughts in many parts of the world. 
And of course, the second crisis, it's, it's different in many ways from that first crisis because we have the, you know, the lingering effects of COVID and we have the war in Ukraine, which is having, you know, devastating effects throughout the world. But it, it's also very common, very similar to the first crisis that I, I previously mentioned in terms of the interconnections between these three systems. So we wonder whether we are in a back to the future scenario or a you know history repeating itself. And we wonder, okay, what have we done with all this nexus thinking in the past 10 years? How come you know it hasn't made much difference? So I think this is where you know the gap to nexus doing it really becomes you know surfaces, it really becomes uh, um, very clear that we really need to work on on the implementation and on on also on working on the sociopolitical drivers of the system. That's such a challenge, isn't it? Taking those lessons from the past and and then applying them to work towards a, a different future. Yes, it is. It's, uh, uh, yeah, it is very, very challenging, and especially when you have drivers and and things that are outside of your control, also driving those systems, right? Like, for example, the war in Ukraine and COVID, and yes, they are there. <laughs> so you know, I, I think as much as possible, we we need to try to be forward looking, you know, rather than reactive. Uh, I think that that's also a very important part of the nexus, you know, trying, you know, this forward looking and trying to predict and act, act so that it doesn't happen again. So it, it's not so much about reacting, but also try to, as much as possible, you know, implement actions that, you know, will get you to a different place to where the place that you are now. <laughs> a proactive change to the direction. <laughs> mm. Is there anything else that you wanted to add about the food, energy and water nexus or anything that we've talked about today before we wrap up? I mean, I can say something because, you know, something that I hear a lot or or many times is all like, oh, no, not the Nexus again. You know, like, like there's been a, like a, an over proliferation of like Nexus research, uh, you know, so, so so I hear this a lot. Right. Uh, we, we, I mean, I, I understand that there has been a proliferation of Nexus articles and these ones come up, you know, a, a lot. But I do think that very valuable research has been done and uh, to understand the interconnections. And we just have to, you know, move forward with, with understanding a little bit more the challenges and, you know, thinking about, you know, how to, you know, institutionalize the solutions and how to overcome those challenges, which, you know, a, a, I would say some researchers have started doing, you know, there, are, there is some very good research, but we, we, we need to, you know, advance a little bit more the, the literature and the work towards that side. Uh, but uh, yeah, just to say, I think it's an evolving concept. It's not something that it's like, oh, okay, we already, you know, there's been like 2000 articles published and that's it, you know, let's move on. No, I, I think, you know, it's a concept that, you know, it's evolving and now we are looking into, you know, uh, other aspects into more the implementation and moving forward and trying to avoid, you know, a third crisis in in the past few decades. So I, I think it's very important. It's just that the dynamics now and the dimensions that we're looking at are different, but nonetheless, still very, very critical. I don't think everything has been done. <laughs> Definitely important to move as you say, from not just Nexus thinking, but actually Nexus doing an implementation. Dr. Pamela Kadic, thanks so much for talking to us today. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's been lovely talking to you. You too. Kat found this approach to water justice illuminating. 
and it is clear that to bring justice for all, we must consider all the systems that connect to water. If you've been inspired by Nexus thinking and Nexus doing, you can find more of Sarah and Pamela's work in the episode description. Thank you to both for joining this episode of the Water Justice Podcast. Thank you for being part of the conversation on this episode of the Water Justice Podcast. If the ideas of this podcast inspire you, please subscribe and consider sharing. With your help, we can foreground water justice as an urgent policy issue. This podcast is executive produced by Quinton Grafton, the convener of the Water Justice Hub at the Crawford School of Public Policy, the Australian National University. The podcast is a platform for truth-telling and justice for all in relation to water. It's hosted by me, Kat Taylor, and Tim Whiffen, and is produced by Tim Whiffen of Whimsy Productions. Thank you to the guests for making this possible.